You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis chapter 20. We're going to take chapter 20 as a whole unit. We'll be reading verses 1 through 18. Genesis 20, verse 1, from there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar, and Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all you who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you, did you see that you did this wrong? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wonder from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Save me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah's wife to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you this morning, and we pray, Father, that, Lord, you'd be pleased to teach us, to lead us, to spiritually nourish us, Father, from your word. Father, that we would hear your lovely voice. As we look at these passages, Father, we pray, Father, that you would use these truths, Father. You would place them deep in our hearts and that, Father, you would use them to make our lives more and more in conformity to that of your Son, our Lord, our Master, Jesus. So, Father, we pray these things in his precious name. Amen and amen. Two words that begin our text this morning from there uh, indicate to us that 
Abraham is now on the move. And you'll recall from the beginning of chapter 18 that Abraham had been sojourning, sojourning uh, by the oaks. <laughs> Try to get that out. By the oaks of Mamre. And, uh, of course, the oaks or the terebinths, if you will, were a large uh, grove of, of oak trees where uh, Abraham had been uh, dwelling for some time, uh, owned by one of his friends, alliances, if you will, Mamre. Mamre and his two brothers are of those who accompany Abraham when he goes to fight against Kedar Laomer. So you recall that Abraham, for the most part, over chapters uh, uh, 18 and 19, has been pretty much camping uh, right there. In verse 20, we're told that he, he picks up and he leaves, and he journeys towards the territory of the Negev. Now, it's hard for us sometimes to get a bearing about what's going on here, because it's, you know, if it's said that Abraham picked up his ten pegs and, and, and traveled towards Beaver Falls, then we would have some idea of what's going on, uh, because we can, in, in, we can imagine where Beaver Falls is, at least probably most of us. Uh, where is the Negev? Well, if you're familiar with a map of the Holy Land, some of you in the back of your Bibles will have maps like this. You notice the Holy, that the Negev is just a desert in the southern area, just below the, the promised land. And uh, Abraham sojourns that way, and he settles in a place known as Gerar. And Gerar rests really on the very southern end of the promised land. And, and incidentally and significantly, I would say, uh, this is the area that would be inherited by the tribe of Judah later uh, in the conquest. And I think that's pretty significant that the promised son uh, of uh, Abraham would be born in the area where uh, Judah would inherit uh, the promised land. We might ask ourselves, what caused Abraham to pick up? Why, why is Abraham moving? And uh, on the surface, we might say, well, you know, it's... Uh, Hebrews 11 makes that really clear that Abraham lived in the promised land as a foreigner, uh, living in tents. Uh, even though the land was promised to him, he lived as a foreigner in it. And uh, uh, really contrary-wise to Lot, we found Lot in chapter 19 dwelling in a house uh, in Sodom. Uh, but Abraham, it's easy for us to lose track of, they're still living in tents. They're still moving around, roaming around. And, and here we see Abraham, he's looking to... He's looking forward to a city whose foundation is the Lord. This foundation is of, of God. And he's sojourning. But I think there's another possible explanation as to why he moves as well. When we last saw Abraham, what was he doing in Genesis 19? He was on the hill overlooking the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Gamboim, And he saw the smoke rolling up like a furnace. Uh, it's conjectured by some commentary and biblical interpreters that perhaps Abraham could even smell uh, the burning uh, that was taking place. The distance is not, especially by today's standards, the distance between where Abraham was and Sodom and Gomorrah is not that great of a distance. Um, where Abraham would have once saw a luscious and prosperous valley, probably a very beautiful uh, valley, its beauty lured lot to it, didn't it? Where he once saw that, all he would have saw after Genesis 19, it's just destruction. Um, I think that's probably maybe one of the best reasons for why Abraham said, you know, I think it's time to pick the tent pegs up and, and move. So Abraham travels south below where uh, Sodom and Gomorrah once were. In verse 2, we find Abraham and Sarah and his wife 
we find Abraham saying of, of Sarah that she's my sister. And the reader of Genesis says to himself or herself, what? We've been here before, haven't we? You recall from Genesis 12 at the very beginning of our study, you know, Abraham is called out of Haran to leave his father's house and to go to a land that the Lord is going to show him. And Abraham, as a very young believer, uh, not young physically, he's 75 years old, but he's a young believer at this point, picks up and travels to really an un, un, uh, just in a general direction to an unknown destination. And he gets down into the land of Canaan, and he no sooner gets into the land of Canaan than what happens. The, the area is struck with a severe famine. And what does Abraham do? Does he call on the Lord? Lord, give me direction. Show me what I'm to do. How are we going to deal with this famine? We have no record of him doing that. Instead, he leans on his own resources and said, let's, let's migrate to Egypt. But there's an inherent danger in Abraham going to Egypt. And, and Abraham has lived a while. He's a street smart guy. And we learn a lot about Abraham as he travels down to Egypt. And he says to his wife, Sarah, listen, when we get down near Egypt, you need to tell everybody that I'm your brother. Because he realizes there will be people who will see the beauty of Sarah and want to take her to Pharaoh so Pharaoh can include her in his harem. And Abraham's uh, suspicions and fears actually come to fruition as they reach uh, Egypt. And we studied that passage where Sarah is taken and... Uh, it, it's really an uh, unimaginable scene. I, I can't imagine uh, these strangers taking Tammy off uh, to be married to some uh, pagan king in, in Egypt. I, I can't imagine that scene. But God intervened, didn't he? He intervened very powerfully, and it resulted in Abraham and everybody getting kicked out of Egypt, which is probably something they were happy to perhaps have happened to them. And we don't hear any more about it until we come to chapter 20. And we come to chapter 20, and we come to verse 2, and what do we see happening? And we see Abraham is up to some old tricks. He's saying that Sarah is his sister, and what happens? Abimelech, king of Gerar, sends and takes Sarah. Well, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is plain and simple. Abraham is afraid. And what happens to his faith as, he, as the fear gets the better of him? What happens to his faith and the promises of God? Well, they diminish and he takes things into his own hands. And what we see here is evidence of a, of a deeply rooted sin pattern in Abraham's life is what we see here. Uh, we'll see that more and more as we go on. Now, uh, Sarah is taken off by, taken, she's taken by Abimelech, king of Gerar. And look at verse 3. Notice how the Lord responds to this. He comes to Abimelech in a dream by night and says to him, Behold, you're a dead man. I think, I think we could paraphrase this text quite, uh, uh, quite accurately if we wrote it to say, but God came to Abimelech in a nightmare. Could you imagine how intimidating that would be? And mind you, the close proximity of Gerar 
to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's hard for me to imagine that Abimelech had no knowledge of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. I'm thinking he certainly did realize. Now, does he have all of the details as Abraham uh, did? Probably not. But um, obviously, I think that being in the back of your mind and then having this dream and the Lord saying to you in this dream, you're a dead man. That would certainly get your attention. Why is he a dead man? Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And here we see how important the marriage bond is to God, don't we? I mean, we could make application right here. How important is the marriage bond to God? Now, ask Abimelech. He's, he's, being, he's being indoctrinated in it right now. Uh, we see God's heart attitude towards it. Now, Abimelech responds in verse 4. We're told that he had, the text tells us that Abimelech had not approached Sarah. And Abimelech says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Notice he uses the word people. Wouldn't you kind of expect him to say, will, will you kill an innocent man? Aren't you kind of expecting an innocent man? Uh, I think there's a number of reasons why Abimelech uses people. We're told at the end of the text that the Lord had cursed Abimelech and his household. How? I, I don't really know. I don't think we can say that the, the, the text is not that specific. But evidently, um, as Abraham prays for them in the end, uh, Abimelech's wife and female slaves are, are freed from whatever is causing their wombs to be closed. Uh, I think that's one reason why Abimelech would, would say people. I think another reason why Abimelech would say people is he had sent for Sarah which means there are other individuals implicated in taking Sarah, bringing Sarah to him, and uh, there, there's, there's, other thing, there's other people implicated in this. But again, I think another reason for this is I think he's aware of what has happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, just my own personal thought on this. I can't say that, thus saith the Lord on that one, but I, I think he's probably aware of what is taking place uh, in chapter 19. And Abimelech continues in verse 5. He says, didn't Abraham say to me, she's my sister? And didn't Sarah herself say that Abraham is her brother? He continues, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Now, what is Abimelech saying when he says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands? Is Abimelech saying he's without sin? No, it's not what he's saying. He's saying to the Lord that he thought she was single. He believed she was single. He did not have any knowledge or any suspicion that she was married. That's what he's saying. He's hardly innocent. He's married. Fellas, is it okay for us to go whistling for uh, ladies to bring back to the household? It's never been okay for that. Uh, it's never been okay for that. And what is he doing? Why is he? He's hardly innocent in all of this. Hardly innocent in all this. But notice how gracious God answers Abimelech. In verse 6, God said to him in the dream, which I would say is a nightmare, he says, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. In other words, God says, yes, I realize that you fully believe she was single. And he continues to say something that is stunning to us. He says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. What a what a, what a tremendous, like what? 
I mean, we could really spend the rest of our time together this morning on that sentence, couldn't we not? I mean, Abimelech has not touched Sarah. Why? Because the Lord has kept him from doing it. And here we see that the Lord is not just standing back, watching and waiting to see what evil thing that we're going to do next, but in His divine providence and in His divine knowledge and His divine perfection, He is actually restraining evil by virtue of His common grace. And we have an, just, a, a, there's no way for us to put any kind of inventory or to take any kind of accounting to how indebted we are to God for how many times God has kept us from being violated by others who without this restraining grace would have violated us. In other words, we have no clue as to how indebted we are to God for His common grace, which we receive every day. Every day. And maybe we could put this on the flip side and, 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 and get in with Abimelech here and say, you know, um, how many times, maybe we can think of times when we were kids, we were thinking about doing something or getting into something, and just something made us stop at the last moment. And had we have done it, had we have went through with it, the results would have been catastrophic. But something kept us from doing it. Well, in light of this, what do you suppose that something was? It's not something, it's someone. God and His common grace, keeping us from destroying ourselves and others. See, I know you've done this in the integrity of your heart. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, the Lord says, I didn't let you touch her. I know you haven't touched her because I didn't let you do it. I didn't let you do it. Now, verse 7, God continues, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. This is the first time the word prophet's used in the Bible, by the way. If you look up the word prophet in a concordance, you'll find the first occurrence right here in chapter 20, verse 7. The Lord refers to Abraham uh, as his prophet. And he says that Abraham will pray for you and you shall live. But, and he warns him. He says, listen, if you don't return, Sarah, you need to understand that you and your whole household are going to die. You're going to die. And, 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 and we don't have to look very far to understand why God's so emphatic about this, do we? I mean, for one, it's wrong. But two, let's think about in terms of the promise and how the promise is starting to mature. What is, what is supposed to be happening right now? A, 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 God has promised Abraham probably about two months or less, a matter of weeks earlier than this event, God has promised Abraham that this time next year, you're going to have a son. So it's conception time. Now, if Sarah is carted off to this king and then returned back to Abraham, and suddenly she turns up pregnant, what do you suppose people are going to say or people are going to think? And how are we to know if this is really Abraham's child? Or is it Abimelech's child? And it's really, I mean, really of all of the times for Abraham to pull this stunt, really, right now? I mean no disrespect. As I've said over and over again about these stories, we are not given these stories so we can slam Abraham for 45 minutes. You'll hear sermons 
That's, that's what happens in them. That, this, is not, this is not slam Abraham time. This is look in a mirror time as we're going to see here in a few minutes. These things that Abraham is struggling with, well, hello. Rick's struggling with them too. Now, I haven't told anybody that Tammy's my sister. Don't misunderstand here. Never done that. But it'll become more clear what I'm saying here in a few minutes. We see that God is going to fulfill His promise and no human sin is going to thwart that promise. No human sin is. Abimelech is not ever going to be capable of touching Sarah. It will not happen. And had Abraham really believed that, and had he really known that, it wouldn't be in this situation. Abimelech, he gets, the, he gets it. Verse 8, what's he do? He rises early in the morning, first order of business. He calls his servants, tells them all these things, and we see that they're very much afraid. Why? Again, I'm going to conjecture here. This is conjecture. This is just what I think. This is not thus saith the Lord. Just my own personal conjecture here. I think they all know about Genesis 19. I think they all know about Sodom and Gomorrah. There is fear of God in this place. And we look at verse 9. Abimelech calls Abraham. And he says to him, what in the world have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom such a great sin? He comes right out. Basically calls Abraham in and says, hey man, what in the world, what in the world have you done to us? And notice, notice the stinging, the last sentence is so stinging. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Now, one of the promises that are given to Abraham is that he is going to be a blessing to all of the families of the world. He has not been a blessing to Abimelech. Quite the opposite here. Um... And, and here Abraham is. I mean, he, can you imagine how stinging this would be? He is being rebuked by what many commentators call a pagan king. I'm not going to call him that. I'll explain that why in a few minutes. I'm not going to call him a pagan king. I'm not going to say that. I'll explain myself in a couple minutes. But here Abraham is being rebuked, and he's being rebuked rightfully in the presence of probably many. Can you imagine how stinging and humiliating that would be? In verse 10, Abimelech said to Abraham, you know, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham answers, he begins to give an accounting for his actions. And at the start, I think he starts out pretty good here. He said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. Now, on Abraham's side, I think we can all say, you know, Abraham, I think that's a, a worthy speculation. But actually, there is fear of God in this place. That's why I'm a little reluctant to call Abimelech a pagan king. I think it's easy for us to do this, and I've been guilty of myself. It's easy for us to look around and, and to see people in our community or people all over the place and think, you know what, I mean, look at that. I mean, it, these guys need Jesus. They probably do need Jesus. But to try to think that we know exactly where they are in terms of their hearts, mm, that's no good. 
that's no good. Abraham's not aware of what God's doing in Abimelech's heart. He's making conjecture. It's an educated conjecture. But he misses the mark here, doesn't he? It was one of the reformers I read over the, this past week in preparation for this morning. I think it might have been Luther that, that believed Abimelech was in a state of grace. I, don't, I can't say that's true or if that's not true. Many commentators would argue against that and say Abimelech was a pagan king. I don't really, you know what? <laughs> I don't want to do that. I just don't want to do, I don't know. Um, I just don't know the condition of Abimelech's heart. What I see happening here in this text is Abimelech is conducting himself more righteously than Abraham is in this particular text. And that there is fear of God in Abimelech's heart. And I think this ought to, really, I think this ought to cause us to hesitate somewhat. I, I hope that it will help me to hesitate in making rash judgments about folks that are around us. But I think it will also comfort us whenever we think to ourselves, oh, well, where's our loved ones at? Where's this person at? Where's that person at? Where's this person? At the end of the day, we don't really know. That, I think, is a great comfort to us. Does that make sense? Abraham misses this one. And granted, I'll give to him that, okay, it doesn't look good. Oftentimes it doesn't look good, but things aren't always as they seem. And I think one of the great things that awaits us when we get to heaven, one of the great things that await us is going to be who we see there. I think that's going to be, and, and it should give us a tremendous amount of comfort in regards to our loved ones here. That's the point I'm trying to make here. So Abraham, he offers that. He says, I, I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place. Secondly, he goes, I thought they'll kill me because of my wife. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure that would have happened. Uh, I know it wouldn't have happened. God wouldn't have allowed it to happen. But I'm not so sure if Abimelech would have realized that Sarah was married, that he would have bothered her. Um, I don't know. But look at verse 12. Verse 12 is not, not, so, not so good. Um, Abraham should have stopped at verse 11. He says in verse 12, Besides, she is indeed my sister. The daughter of my father, they're not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. I mean, this is the part where I think Abimelech might, if he's ready to smack Abraham, thinking it's right now, especially if he said it with any kind of smirk on his face. Like, really? You're going to, you, you're, you're, you're so deceitful here. And you're going to give me this, this half-truth. Half-truths are deceiving truths. Give me the truth, nothing but the truth, and the whole truth. Not the half-truth. Verse 13, when God caused me to wander from this, Abraham's still speaking to Abimelech. When God caused me to wander from my father's house and said to me, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. He said to Sarah, say of me that he is my brother. Now, though we haven't heard about this since Genesis 12, I think with verse 13, we can conjecture quite easily that this has been going on since Genesis 12. That this is a deeply embedded sinful pattern that is in Abraham's life. And it could very well be why God allows him to get back into this trouble. 
God doesn't take delight in putting us into humiliating circumstances. He takes no delight in doing that. But here, Abraham has been brought into an excruciatingly painful, humiliating experience where he's being rebuked by someone who didn't even think feared the Lord. Abraham is the father of the faithful, being rebuked by this, by this king. And it looks like it's the modus operandi. It looks like this is business as usual, where his wife says that he is my brother. And we think about the danger that Abraham puts his wife in everywhere he goes like this. Uh, this is, this, again, we side with Abimelech. You are doing things that ought not to be done. Now, Abimelech in verse 14, he takes sheep and oxen, servants and female servants, and he showers them upon Abraham, and he returns Sarah to him. And look at the grace Abimelech shares on, on, uh, before Abraham here. Abimelech, you know, you're, this is the part where you're waiting for him to throw him out of Gerar, like he got thrown out of Egypt. But look what Abimelech does. He says, behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. You're, you're, you're welcome here, Abraham. Forgiveness. There's, God, has dwelt, God has dealt graciously with Abimelech. And it looks to me like Abimelech is dealing graciously with Abraham. Why? Abraham is God's prophet. And whoever receives God's prophet receives the Lord, does he not? It's really amazing, isn't it? Things aren't what they seem to be. I take a lot of comfort in that. To Sarah, verse 16, Abimelech says, Behold, I've given your brother. Notice that he says brother. I think, if you don't think there's any humor in the Bible, look at verse 16 again. Okay, it's already been explained they're married. <laughs> but then there's that sorry excuse, you know, the, the laws of marriage haven't been given yet, and it was commonplace in that time uh, for marriage to take place with relatives that are much closer than what we would, we would do today. But um, Abimelech says to Sarah, listen, your brother over here. <laughs> I think there's some, I think there may maybe be a little bit of a dig there, possibly. I don't know. Um, I, I, I can't read it without a little grin on my face, though. I mean, that part I'll say is true. I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. What is, what is Abimelech doing? He's establishing Sarah's honor before everyone who is watching. Abraham has shamed Sarah's honor. Her husband has shamed her. Abimelech is honoring her and saying, listen, I never touched her. I didn't know she was married. She is, here she is in the integrity of her honor. Here she is before all who are watching. There need be no whispering in the corner about her. Okay, I've never touched her. And he returns her back to Abraham, vindicated. Verse 17, Abraham prays to God and God heals Abimelech and heals his wife and female slaves. So they poor children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Having explained the story and offered some application of the story and um, went over the story, I've, um, I know you're some, somewhere down along the line we decided there's three points, should be three points to the sermon. I've got seven, is that okay? You've already had them though. 
Um, I've already been giving them to you. This is really just a review. There's more than this. I thought seven is a good number. It's a cool number, isn't it? Seven. Um, for, they're, they're not in any particular order. I just This is just the order that I put them down as I was studying this passage. And one is when by the first, when by our sinful and foolish actions we have brought shame to God. God does not shy away from us, nor is He embarrassed of us. Why do I say that? What has Abraham done to his ministry and Gerar? I mean, can you imagine when the Lord says to Abimelech, he, he's my prophet. If you were Abimelech, what would you be thinking under your breath? This is some prophet you got here. Prophet of deceit. It is, it, it, Abraham has no witness in Gerar. He has no witness. He's lost his witness in Gerar. Um, he's really at the mercy of Abimelech in many respects here. Um, but notice God doesn't shy away from him. That is Abraham. Nor does God, is he embarrassed to call Abraham his prophet. This man's my prophet. When we're conducting ourselves, again, chapter 20 is not slam Abraham hour. The reformers used to refer to the Bible as a mirror that when we look into Scripture, we see, we look in as if looking into a mirror. What is going on here? Abraham has brought shame on his ministry through what? Unbelief. And a lot of times when we have done similar things, when we be at the workplace, if we've conducted ourselves in a way that, okay, after that's probably it. We probably don't have much of a ministry here at this point. We begin to grieve about that, don't we? And as we're grieving, what are we, what are we tempted to think? We're tempted to think that God is way over there somewhere. You know, He's just way over there. And here we are over here. We're by ourselves. And He's probably embarrassed to even take our names at this point, until we can somehow pick ourselves back up and make it up to Him and get back into His graces. Now, as much as we know better than that, as much as we would say, no, and I know that's not the truth, as much as we know better than that, how do you feel when this happens? Just, how do you feel when that happens? It'd be nice if we had a verse we could look to when that happens. We do. Chapter 20. Yeah, Abraham, is he botched this? This isn't, listen, this, he hasn't botched things up a little bit here. He's really got things botched up pretty significantly here. His sin hasn't just affected him. The, the only, it has affected all these people in Abimelech's house. Again, Abimelech had no business bringing women into his household. He's already married. Okay, he's not innocent here. But nevertheless, this whole thing has been brought on. Abraham's deceit has played a role in it. Abraham can't say to Abimelech, hey, you had no business taking her anyway. You're already married. He, had no, he doesn't offer that as an excuse, and that wouldn't have been much better than verse 12. But look how the Lord's, look what the Lord has not shied away from Abraham. The Lord's protecting Sarah. He's protecting his promises. He's protecting his children. By protecting his promises, he's protecting his children. And the same thing for us whenever we're blown in and we're feeling that way. God is not shying away from us, nor is he embarrassed to call us his children. If you're in Christ this morning, he's not shying away from you whenever you've blown it. 
He's not shying away from me when I'm reborn, isn't it? That's, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Second thing, very easy. Our behavior, actions, and heart attitudes are often worse than our unbelieving neighbors. Have you ever had that experience? If you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you've had that experience. Or you're not paying attention. Where you're in this experience, and your heart attitude in this experience, it's revealed to you that it's worse than the heart attitudes of some of the unbelievers that are around you. Has anybody had that experience? Am I the only one that's had that experience? That is painful, isn't it? Now, why, is, why would God allow us to have that experience? Is it because he he's got this yardstick that he wants to put across their knuckles? No. He's revealing to us just the depravity of our hearts. He does it a little bit at a time. He's not going to do this all at once to us, but from time to time he does reveal this, doesn't he? And sometimes, let's confess, our behavior, actions, and attitudes are worse than our unbelieving neighbors. It's just a fact. It is the case here with Abraham, isn't it? He's conducting himself in ways that ought not to be done. He's doing things to Abimelech that ought not to be done. Third thing, have you ever felt somewhat on and off in regards to your faith? Like it's really on? It's really on. Man, today it's really on. And tomorrow, it's really off. It's really off. I mean where's that coming from, the context? In Genesis 18, which is just a very short time before Genesis 20 takes place, we find Abraham learning of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we find him acting in exemplary fashion up on that hill, displaying exemplary faith. In fact, that, that passage where he pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah is just astounding. I'm just amazed by how Abraham wrestles with the Lord up on that hill and says, listen, if you can find 50, 50 men, don't destroy it. All for lack of five. When he says that, what is salesman? He doesn't come and say, for, well, 45. No, he says, all for lack of five, you wouldn't do it, would you? Like if we missed by, by pointing to five, what a sales move that is. And we just find him acting in this extraordinary and exemplary faith. And here in Gerar, What's going on in Gerar? He's so afraid for himself that he's thrown Sarah's wife under the bus. It's uh, sometimes the way our faith is, isn't it? Have you, ever, have you ever had the experience of noticing this about yourself, that your faith can be so on one minute and so off the next minute that you've actually thought in the recesses of your heart, maybe at night, Lord, am I really saved? Am I really in Christ? If I'm really in Christ, how can it be like this? Well, Genesis 20. Is Abraham really in Christ? Absolutely he is. He's the father of the faithful. Jesus is a son of Abraham. He's on and off. How do we know if we're really in Christ? Is there an over... In Abraham's life, what we see here very clearly is there's an overarching governing principle of Abraham's life that he is for God. And you ask yourself that question. Is there this overarching governing principle in our life that we are for God? And if the answer for that is, that is a great sign that you're in Christ. It is a given that all of us are going to drift from the left to the right in our pilgrimage here uh, towards heaven. 
towards the new earth. But what is the overarching principle? When we have fallen, how do we respond to the fall? Is it in repentance and grief? Those are the questions we need to ask ourselves. So when we have, and we have those moments where we're like, what in the world? I'm like, I was so on. Sunday service was, I was so blessed. I was so blessed by Sunday service. And now what in the world is happening? Well, all of this reminds us of my fourth point is that salvation is all of grace. We see this in Abraham's life. Is Abraham getting Abraham into heaven? If it weren't for these these chapters, chapter 20, for example, chapter 12, for example, chapter, what, 16, when he has the affair with Agar, we might conclude Abraham was such a great guy, got in on his own. We are never going to make that conclusion based on how honest the Bible is about Abraham's life and pilgrimage. Salvation is all by grace. This, in, in Genesis 20, Abraham botches up. And God can't just simply say, Abraham, you're forgiven. God has to deal with the, the fracture and the infraction of justice that's taken place here. So in order for Abraham to be forgiven, God has to take this, this conduct of Abraham's towards Abimelech, and he has to punish Jesus for it. Jesus took the punishment for Abram, Abraham's activity here. And in the same way, Jesus takes the punishment for ours. Salvation is all of grace. It's all of grace. Grace through faith. Fifthly, we have deep-rooted patterns of sin. Each one of us does. I don't need a lot of commentary on that. Right? We're aware of what our problems are. We have deep-rooted sinful patterns, tendencies. They don't go away easily. God takes some of them away. But others, he, for it, he, they remain behind. And it's, here we see in Abraham's life, he's been walking with the Lord for 25 years. And this pattern is still here. It has to be dealt with by God's grace. Six, God often restrains us from committing sins. We saw that, didn't we? He often restrains us from committing sins. And seven, you know, this is something to keep in mind, especially last Sunday. Many of you said last Sunday, the Lord really blessed you last Sunday. And some, some services are like that, aren't they? Some the services sometimes, sometimes will be incredibly blessed and are, maybe the person sitting right next to us just finds it to be an average Sunday. Whereas some, someone else, the Lord just really is touching on that particular morning and that's just the way the Lord works. And we have these peaks and valleys in terms of our individual experience of each worship service. Some Sundays are just, wow. And I can say this as a pastor, some sermons that I preach sometimes in certain contexts, it's like, Wow, Lord, that was, I could see on people's faces they were being deeply moved. And in other words, these are kind of like what we would call mountaintop experiences. I would say Abraham in Genesis 18 is having him a mountaintop experience. And here's my point we often fall right after experiencing some of our best moments with the Lord. That, um, the little book that John Owen wrote many years ago called The Mortification of Sin, in that he warns about that, that um, one of the most crucial times for us to be on our guard against temptation is right after we've had a high moment with the Lord. Because it's so often right after we have those high moments that we fall. Maybe some of you can put your finger on some actual specific situations and circumstances and times and places. You could actually put your finger on the calendar and maybe even the hour when it happened. Um, other of us will be able to one of these days 
after we've had these great spiritual experiences, it seems that oftentimes it's, it's shortly after that where we experience great temptation and that is to be um, certainly watched for. Um, so, we consign these things to the Lord and we ask Him to uh, fill our hearts with these things. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for the many lessons that we have here this morning. We thank You, Father, for the, the comfort. Father, it's so easy for us to see ourselves in this text. Father, our, our lives are just like Abraham's. His faith is so exemplary in one moment and, and again, and in, in really in, in need of repentance on another moment. And Father, we, we look to You in kind. It's, Father, perhaps now it's maybe the easiest time for us to be strong in our faith. And maybe some of us are really particularly experiencing Your grace even right now at the moment. Well, Father, what about tomorrow? What about Tuesday and Wednesday? And what about next Thursday? And what about when we're in the checkout aisle or we're in trying to get through Walmart? And what about um, all of these particular situations, Father? What about when we're really tired and we turn on the news and, and we see some of the things we see there? What about our heart attitudes then, Father? Lord, we can really relate to ourselves and, and Abraham, and we can see ourselves really. We see the Scriptures as a mirror. And all these truths, Father, they so comfort us, O oh Father, that, Lord, um, You're never ashamed of us. You're never embarrassed by us. You're always with us. Our Father, sometimes our attitudes are worse than our unbelieving neighbors. And, uh, Father, sometimes our face on, sometimes it's off. Lord, we know it's all by grace. Father, we, we, we're aware of our deeply rooted patterns of sin, Father, and we thank You, Father, for the ways You've kept us from sinning. And Father, we understand that, Lord, it's oftentimes after these mountaintop experiences, Lord, that we really, truly do uh, experience such great temptation. But Father, this morning, Lord, and especially as we come to the table this morning, Father, may we, may we be reminded of how Father, you meet all of these things with your grace in Jesus Christ. And that through his once and for all sacrifice on the cross, and by virtue of his resurrection, by virtue of rising from the grave and ascending to your right hand, that Father, not only can we be cleansed, but also, Father, we can be made anew uh, in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we are of great, we are so greatly encouraged this morning, Father, even as we stare at Scripture as staring in a mirror, seeing ourselves reflected in the life of Abraham. Well, Father, we are greatly encouraged because you're a great and merciful God who has given so very much to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.